Well, if you do have your Bibles with you, I invite you to take them, uh, whether you've got one with you or on your phone, and uh, turn to the book of Haggai. I was telling somebody recently, I said I hadn't quite yet decided how I was going to pronounce this book, because I don't know if it's Haggai or Haggai. And so uh, whichever one uh, you land on is fine. I think today we'll all settle on Haggai, and that may change as the sermon goes on. But uh, Haggai is where we're at, two chapters. And uh, I, uh, we're, we're wrapping, we're, get, we're be preparing, we're coming up on the end of our, our series through the book of the 12 is what we're calling it, more familiar, the minor prophets. And, um, and uh, I trust that if you've been able to, you've been able to take maybe some glimpses of the book we're, we're coming up on. Uh, so for next week we'll be in Zechariah, and so you can, it's a longer book, uh, one of the longer minor prophets, so you read through that and kind of get yourself familiar with it. Uh, I so uh, enjoyed hearing uh, one church member, I won't give her name because she didn't, I didn't ask permission, but um, came up to me and said, uh, said, I was so excited. She said, I, was, I read through the book of Haggai every day this week, and, and she said, one of the things that stood out to me was how many times God said, consider your ways. And then I got to church this morning, and I opened up to the, to the, the bulletin, and I saw that it says, you're going to go through, and you use the word consider, and you know, just so thrilled. And, and that could be everybody. It, you don't have to be a pastor to get the theme of a book. And just by reading it and soaking it in, you can, you can, find, you can find what God's, what God's talking about in these, in these pages. So again, we're uh, kind of as we, as we have done in the past, we're only going to read just a small portion of the full, full book, but something at least to get us started, and then we'll, we'll kick off from there. So we're going we're gonna to start in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, uh, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, luxurious houses, while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, on all that brings forth, on man and beast, and all their labors. We'll stop there for the reading this morning. Now, the background of the book is that this is, the, the, if, you want to, if you want another biblical background, this takes place during Ezra chapter 4, 5, and 6. The book of Ezra, chapters 4, 5, and 6. Now, this takes place after the Babylonian exile. 
So if you've been kind of following with us, God has been threatening exile to both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Northern Israel gets taken out by the Assyrians, and by the time we get to even like Habakkuk, God is saying, hey, the Babylonians are coming. So the Babylonians do indeed come as, as, a, as an instrument of God's judgment to the people of the southern tribe, and they take them away. And what happens is, is, uh, is when, uh, in, that was in 586, and so the Jews had been exiles in Babylon for decades until the Babylons, and this world history would tell us this, were overrun by Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire. And Cyrus, what he does is he eventually lets Jews return to the Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And that's kind, of, that's kind of where we're in. So the Jews first go back um, around 536, and they get the foundation laid, and then the work stops. And we're going to talk about that later on. But they get the foundation laid, and the work stops. For, I mean, oppression, the outside countries kind of started giving them oppression and saying, hey, what are you guys doing? And then there's this indifference to God that we read about here. And so the work stops. Until a few, oh, about 15 years later when Haggai shows up on the scene and gets them to resume the building. And this will all make sense, more sense, more clarity as we kind of work our way through here. But the theme of this book is worship, which is why I appreciate Steve's prayer. He says this, why we're here, it's about worship. Now worship for these people when Haggai writes is, it starts out as the problem and as a matter of fact, if you want to break up this book, just look for anywhere where it gives you some dates. Uh, so the beginning of chapter 2, it says, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, that's, that's Haggai's second message, and then there's two others in chapter 2. So that's kind of how you break up the book. Haggai gives them four different messages throughout this book. And in the first message he gives them, he says the people were indifferent, they changed, and then they faced discouragement. After that, their worship called them to remember their former sins and avoid them, and then God called them to worship in light of what was yet to come. And so we're going to jump right into these four messages and admonitions to stir their heart to worship him. God gives four messages and admonitions to stir their heart to worship him. And number one, the message to the indifferent, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Now, what were they indifferent to? Now, as we read this first part of chapter 1, I hope you picked up on it. They were indifferent to worshiping God. Because if you notice, God says, you guys are building these nice fancy houses while my house lies in ruin. Now, God was not concerned with a physical building just for the sake of having physical building. God was concerned about their worship. In the temple, for the Jewish people, it was the center of worship for Jehovah, for Yahweh, for God. And I want you to notice a couple things about their indifference. First, I want you to notice that their indifference is an intentional decision. Notice God says in verse 2, he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, it's like they made a decision like, it is, it is not time to invest in the things of God right now. They had been there 16 years by the time Haggai is writing, and yet they had little more than a foundation to show for the, the reconstruction of the temple. And as we mentioned earlier, opposition, opposition came, and so they found themselves wanting to invest in something else. Which is why when it comes to worshiping God, indifference to worshiping of the true God and worshiping of Jesus is an intentional decision. It's saying, now's not the time, or I don't have time, or now isn't good for me because I might 
be oppressed, or I might have opposition. Which is why worship in indifference is spiritual laziness. Because notice here they say, the time has not yet come. It's, 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 let's, let's put it off. Let's hold off on this. And they said, now's not a good time to worship the Lord. Now's not a good time to give time to the Lord. Have you ever said that? The Israelites made excuses as to why worship, worshiping God wasn't convenient. Have you ever done that? Wake up in the morning and man, the first thing is got a busy schedule, got a busy day, or I didn't get enough sleep last night, or, or, or you know, I'm not feeling well, or whatever it might be, or maybe it's a Sunday morning and the weekend was long, and, or maybe there's stuff starting tomorrow and it was just, we can line up all the excuses and that's what their indifference to worshiping God was doing. And which is why indifference is a worship issue. Because God says here, you're living in paneled houses. And you're thinking, paneled houses, what's that, what's that mean? It was basically the luxury of the day. They were building, spending all their time building these nice, big, fancy houses instead of working on their, the temple. And so they had little to no interest in worshiping God, so they worshiped st- stuff instead. Now, this is the dangerous thing about indifference. Because indifference towards God will automatically lead to a preference for something else. They were not, it wasn't in preference, if I could make up a word for you. It wasn't in preference, it was indifference to worshiping God and they preferred something else instead. They had nice houses and they had the opportunity to build nice houses and so that's where their worship went. And more than that, they would, if you notice when we read here, God says, listen, you never brought home enough. You, you didn't have enough to drink. You didn't have enough to eat. I mean, it says you, you would earn wages at the end of verse 6. This is just crazy. You would earn wages so, to put them in bag with holes. It's like money was tight for them. That's what God's saying. I am putting you in a situation through my own discipline towards you that makes money tight, and you're still going out and buying fancy stuff. Can Americans at all relate to that? You don't have the money, and you're going out and buying fancy stuff. And they're neglecting the worship of the Lord. They found a way to buy what they loved. And indifference to worship and the worship of the true God will automatically lead us to prefer something else, and we will find a way to buy what we love. Because in our sinfulness, we will never have an issue finding ways to put our time, money, and energy into worshiping what we love. I was reminded, uh, I was reminded uh, recently of a, of a, of a Saturday, Saturday Night Live skit. Now, just at the outset here, I do not endorse Saturday Night Live at all. So, uh, but this skit featured Steve Martin, and it was clean and it was clever all the way through. And may, you might be familiar with this. This was several years ago. Uh, but this kid featured Steve Martin, and he's, uh, he's a husband sitting down with his wife at the dinner table. And they're going through, and they're just so, they're so, they're so, uh, they're just kind of feeling the, feeling the weight and the burden of all the debt they got into. And they're sitting there talking to each other, and they say, man, if there's, if there's only, what should we do with, with all this debt we have? He's like, we've even tried, we've even pulled out a loan to pay, to consolidate our debts and pay for our debts, and it's just like nothing is working. And then it's like an infomercial where a guy comes in from off screen and uh, he, he tells them, he comes to me and says, I can help you out. And they say, really? What can we do? And he says, he says, I developed a unique new program for getting out of debt. 
It's called, Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. <laughs> and the, as the skit goes on, they're just, Steve Martin, he's, he's saying, what? Like, what is this? He's like, you're saying, if I don't have money, I shouldn't buy it? That's right. It's only one page long. And, and, and he goes, if you, you should save up your money and then buy it. And Steve Martin goes, where do you get this saved money? And just on and on. And the question is, what Steve's saying, you're saying if I want something, I should buy it and then hope I can pay for it, right? And the guys, no. And I bring all that up as an illustration that we are willing to do whatever we can do to get what we love. And it's a worship issue. And they weren't worshiping God, and so they went off there after these nice, fancy houses and tried to build a nice life for themselves. All the while, God is draining their bank accounts and says, you don't have enough to sustain life like this, and you're still just all in on it. And that's why indifference is a call for self-examination. We read those phrases, one, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, and verse 7. Consider your ways. In your heart, take assessment of your actions. Ask yourself this question, what do your ways say about your worship? Because worshiping God is actually, it's almost the exact opposite of what we see displayed here. Remember Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, it's going to be on the screen, it's in the New Living Translation, where he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man that, is like a, heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again, and then he went and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy that field. That's worship. That's following Jesus. Now, it's not wrong to live in a fancy house or have fancy cars or fancy clothes. But the idea here is that the treasure is God himself. The treasure is Jesus Christ. The treasure is a relationship with him. And so we should love that treasure so much we're willing to sell everything if we have to to buy that field and get that treasure. It's being like Moses, we read about in Hebrews 11, who forsook the treasures of Egypt in order to gain Christ. And we need to examine our hearts and see if there's anything, is there anything more valuable to us, more of a treasure to us than Jesus Christ? Right now, I can't answer that for you, you and your own heart and according to your own conscience before God. You've probably got something. What is it? What's more valuable to me, more of a treasure to me than Jesus Christ? If there's anything, we need to get rid of it or knock it down a few notches. Which is the great thing, as, as chapter 1 closes, and we didn't read this, but the great thing about this is that indifference is curable. Because actually what happens, if you look at verse 12, it says, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, uh, Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, notice this, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. I think this is maybe like the first time in all the prophets we've gone through so far. Wouldn't you say where like a prophet came to them and the next phrase we read is they obeyed. They actually had a change of heart. It says they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. They worshipped the Lord. And then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people, the Lord's message. And here's the first thing God tells them. I'm with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred. That's where I get the, the word for the message. Messages that stir the heart. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, uh, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the people, the remnant. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord their God. 
on the 24th day of the month, in the second month, in the second year of Darius the king. Indifference is cured by a change of worship, which only happens by a change of heart, which only happens for us by Jesus radically transforming you and giving your dead spiritual soul life. And the people obeyed the voice of God. They feared him. And it was a work of God. Notice it said, this, the Lord stirred up the spirit. Like the Lord was working. This was a work of God. That song we sing about being all of grace, any good word I say, any good thing I do, it's all of grace. That's what we see here in the Old Testament as well. It's all grace. It's God stirring within his people to want to obey him. This is Philippians 2.13. Remember that passage? God is working in you both to work and to will for his good pleasure. And the result is they came and worked on the house of the Lord. Their heart changed, their worship changed, their actions changed. It's a full package. And so if there's any way in which you're indifferent to God this morning, consider your ways. Confess your sins and come to Christ. Well, kind of on the, kind of on the uppity here, aren't they? I mean, when you change and you're, you're obeying God, but it didn't come without discouragement. And that's what happens next in chapter 2. Which is the second message that Haggai gives to them. To the discouraged, consider God's perspective. Now pick it up in verse 3. Here's what, the, here's what the Lord says. This is the Lord speaking to him again. He says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? And we're going to touch on this in a minute. But is it, is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel. Be strong, O Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And we'll stop right there, but basically what happens is they, they start building the temple again, and they start to realize that after, a, this is about a month, if you go back to verse 1 of chapter 2, it's about a month after they start in on the building project, they realize it wasn't going to look anything like Solomon's temple. As a matter of fact, we have, we have two pictures here. Here's the first. This is Solomon's temple. And if you notice, there's, this is from an ESV study Bible. If you notice, there's all this writing around. There's just a lot going on. I mean, it's overlaid with gold. It's got cedar. Uh, I was just in my personal devotions. I've been reading through 2 Chronicles, and it talks about the tens of thousands of men and people that were all involved in making this thing just the most spectacular thing on the planet. Huge. Here's a picture of what they built. Look a little different. And so the work stops again. And the first time it stopped, if you remember, it was right after they laid the foundation. Now I want to go back. I want to show you. It's going to be on the screen. I want to show you what, what happened. Okay, so they laid down the foundation. This is Ezra chapter 3, verse 11 through 13. And it says, and they sang responsively. Uh, uh, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, okay, right after they laid the foundation. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept. With a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted for joy. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of joy 
the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. Discouragement kills any progress. And God is coming to them, this discouraged people, they're, they're tempted to give up again, and God even brings up the issue, doesn't he? He says, hey, you of the older generation, this, uh, this temple they're building, what do you think of it? Does it look anything like that Solomon's temple? And he even says, isn't it as nothing to you? And then he looks at that other generation building this new temple, and he says, be strong, and just keep building. I'm with you. We can't ignore the past. We can't ignore the past, but neither can we let it anchor us down in the present. Warren Wiersbe says the people of God are a family, not a family album. So as nice as it is to look back at old pictures, we've got to keep our dreams bigger than our memories. And it's great to look back, but every generation, whether it's the generation that's, that's up there or a generation coming in, every generation must look up and press on for the glory of God. It's that old adage, maybe you're familiar with it, methods are many, principles are few. Methods always change, principles never do. And you know, the discouragement came really from this, these unhelpful comparisons, right? They were looking at what they had going right now. And they were looking back at Solomon's temple, and that's, that's where they came from. It's just an un- unhealthy comparison. And moms, families, dads, singles, college students, kids that go to school, that will be what discourages you more than anything, if I could say that. Probably. Probably the greatest discouragement comes is when we're looking at something else, and we, then we look at ourselves and we say, Ugh, I'm not like that. Unhealthy comparisons or unhelpful comparisons will discourage any work, including in your own life. And the remedy, the remedy here is the presence, there's a lot of remedies, I'm going to go through a few here, but notice one of the remedies was the presence of God. And God said, listen, I know you're discouraged, but I'm with you on this. Yeah, it doesn't look like Solomon's golden, amazing thing, but hey, I'm with you. And God was with them to give them his strength. Because it was his presence and their weakness that was an opportunity for them to draw on the sufficient grace of God which is shown greater in weaknesses. And God's presence was not dependent on the result of their efforts. That's not what God was looking for. God's comforting presence was dependent on their union with him and that was it. They were worried God had left them. They were worried that God wasn't going to come back. Because not only were they sinning by not building, but then when they started building, this thing doesn't look anything like the other one. But God was with them. The other remedy was the promises of God in verse 5. According to the covenant that I made with you when I came out of Egypt. He says, I am with you. According to the covenant that I made with you uh, when you came out of Egypt. Discouragement is a time to alert ourselves to the word of God. His presence was with them, and his promises were with them. So God wasn't going to determine his fulfillment of his promises to them based on how the temple looked. His spirit was with them, so they had no need to fear. Here's what he says, my spirit, verse 5, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. 
Fear not. Like the, the look of this temple is not what it's about. It's not what I'm after. So they had no need to fear. Even though they sinned, even though they were exiled, and now they lack sufficient resources to even build a temple that looked like Solomon's, they didn't have the tens of thousands of people from time. By the way, Solomon hired it out from another nation, and they had tons of people. But God wasn't going to revoke his promises. And God is looking at the heart of these people and saying, I love what you're doing. I love it. He goes, I love what this generation is doing. You're building the temple. Great. Not going to look like Solomon's? Okay. And listen, your bank account may not look like someone else's. When you show up for your first day of school tomorrow, your, your hair, your clothes, or your family, whatever, may not look like somebody else's. Your car, whatever it is, it may not look like someone else's. But in a world that judges everything on appearance and money and luxury, isn't it nice to have a heavenly father who looks at the heart? And I say, listen, I don't care what that commercial tells me. That's not what I need to be accepted by God. God isn't taking inventory. Oh, he just passed up another commercial about that hair care product. If he used that, he'd have nice hair, or she would have nice hair, nice, shiny, full hair, like everybody else. He's not looking at that. He's not looking, man, that guy's job, he's getting dirty every single day, just kind of low-rung whatever. He's not looking at that. He's looking at her heart. And so a remedy to this discursion was God's presence, it was God's promises, and verses 6 through 8, it was God's plan. For thus says the Lord, he says, listen, here's, I've got this taken, I've got the end taken care of. Once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I'm going to shake all the nations so that all the treasures of all the nations shall come in. Or some say the, de- the desire of nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine. Everything's mine. The, the, and then we read this in, during the service. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God's plan is to shake the kingdoms and the world from their place. And God was going to set up his temple and his kingdom. And that's still our future as well. This verse is actually quoted, we're not going to take time to turn there, but in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26 and 27, where even the writer of Hebrews is still looking forward to this being fulfilled. And so we can have confidence that when everything else around us is shaking, God cannot be shaken. And that God is, one day God is going to unite all of his people in Jerusalem and you're not going to have to pass any checkpoints to get there. There won't be anything to stand in your way. And the evil of this world will be gone. Those who strike terror in the hearts of people, gone. Those who reject Christ and reject God's ways, gone forever. And there will be nothing to fear. So God's presence is the remedy, God's promises, God's plan. And then in verse 9, God's perspective, where he says, listen, you've got to have the right perspective here. And what my plan is and what I'm going to do. Because the fact of the matter, this remnant that he talks about, they, he, they did not have much to offer. They did not have much to offer the Lord's house. But God was going to take care of the slander later. Listen, I can bring glory to anything, God says. Listen, you, just, you worry about what you're doing in your heart being right with me. And the kingdom that God will establish in the new Jerusalem will be far greater even than Solomon's temple. Or even the temple they were building. Because times of discouragement are times to reevaluate. 
what lens, through what lenses am I looking at my life? Am I God-centered in my thinking or am I stuff-centered? Am I inward-focused or am I just focused on the outside? I think that's why it's important to be around God's people and to have to be open and be a member of the church and, and to be around people because we need people to challenge our perspectives. I could give you an example uh, just yesterday. Talking with somebody, I think maybe, maybe more than that yesterday, but there's a lot of different opportunities where people said something, I just needed, I needed to have my perspective changed. I was looking at something, I wasn't looking at it the right way, and, and the comments were made or observations were made, and I had to say to myself, man, my perspective needs to change. I'm not looking at this clearly, and that's what we need God's people to do. And you can't really do that sitting here. Nobody here is challenging anybody's perspective. But in order to get out of this discouraging heart, these discouraging soul uh, placements, we, we need people to challenge our perspectives, to question our motives. Because God's perspective brings peace. And you can get more money, you can get a bigger house, you can get more cars, you can get fancier clothes, but none of those things will truly improve your life. God's promise of peace in the heart, forgiveness of sins, peace with God, that's, that's, that's what gives you life. And that's what would flow from this temple. But there's a third thing to consider. Because God kind of, in verses 10 through 19, we won't read that, but God actually kind of reminds them of their sin a little bit. And it's very similar to chapter 1. But I would just point you to the, the verse 18 where he says, consider, there's the word consider again, twice in verse 18. And then uh, verse, at the end of, very end of verse 19 where he says, but, but from this day on I will bless you. This is kind of after he goes through again, I was, I, I was taking away all your stuff because of your sin. And that's why the third message is, to the changed, consider sin's defilement. To the indifferent, consider your ways. To the discouraged, consider God's perspective. And to the changed, consider sin's defilement. He kind of has them look back. Remind yourself. And look, again, we have to be careful about when we look back, even at our own sin, because we can get bogged down there. But there is a sense in which our past sin should lead us forward in a way that glorifies God. God has some pretty interesting questions in the first uh, couple of verses of this passage or this section, verse 10, 11, and 12. He basically asks, okay, if you took something holy, like the holy meat from the altar, the sacrifice, and you took that holy meat and you touched it, and then you touched something, does that thing become holy? And the answer is no. And then God asks another question. Well, if you go touch, and in Leviticus, if you touched, uh, in the Old Testament law, if you touched a dead body, anything you touched became unclean. And so he asked that question. If you touch something unclean and then go touch something that is clean, does that thing become unclean? And the answer is absolutely yes. If I touch an unclean thing and then touch something that's clean, that thing becomes defiled. And the whole point, the idea is that you can spread sickness, but you can't spread health. COVID, classic example. We can't spread health. You can spread your COVID. You can spread a flu. You can spread whatever, but you can't spread health. We can't transmit our holiness, but we can transmit the defilement of sin. And our sin does defile, and there's nothing we can do to make it clean. Which is why our definition and view of sin must be dictated by the word of God. That's what he says in verse 11. Ask the priests about the law. Let's get back to the word of God when it comes to your sin. 
Like if you, if you want to know how serious your sin is, don't ask the world or your own feelings. Because our, our sin can't be judged based on whether or not we perceive it to be defiling or destructive. Because there's not a single soul in here, including the guy behind the pulpit, that isn't just naturally ready to say, my sin isn't that bad. Like, if I look at it from my perspective and I just say, I say, man, my, my sin wasn't that bad. It was no big deal. If we really want to know how serious our sin is, we've got to go to the word of God. And just because you may say your sin's no big deal doesn't mean that's true. Because God's, sin says, or God's word says something different. The wages of sin is death. The essence of sin is transgressing God's glory. The scope of sin is the whole person, Isaiah chapter 1. Our sins are like scarlet that stains the perfect whiteness of snow. And we're all infected. It's so defiling and it spreads. We keep passing it on to the next generation. And it brought his discipline. And again, we won't spend too much time on this, but God was trying to awaken them. He goes, you were going out for 20 measures, but you only got 10 in verse 16, I struck you with all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and hail, yet you didn't return to me. They were to reject their sin and go to God, but they, they didn't do it. And listen, there are times in my life and in your life where we're going down the road and we just got to say, we just need to stop and say, God, I need to make a right turn here. Like I've got to get off the road I'm on as far as when I'm stuck in sin or an attitude or whatever it might be. And listen, when your sin takes you to God, and specifically Jesus Christ, then God's discipline is fulfilling its purpose. Because notice he says here, all this was so that you would turn to me. And if in your sin, your sin causes you to turn to Jesus Christ and his cross and his salvation, that's what God's discipline is supposed to do. But any response to sin that isn't going to Jesus is the wrong response to sin. Coming to church is not the proper response to sin as far as you earning your, your keep with God or earning his, his approval. Jesus has a far deeper understanding than you or I will ever have of our sin. And it's not only because he knows our heart. It's because, and this is if you're a Christian, he bore the full weight of the punishment you deserve for your sin. So he understands your sin on a far deeper, deeper level than you could ever know. And it goes far beyond just him simply knowing your heart. He experienced the full weight of God's wrath for your sin. And if you're a Christian, you'll never understand sin. You say, wait a minute, what about when I get to heaven and I'm like perfect in knowledge? One, you won't be perfect in knowledge. There will only be one person who knows everything, and that's God. And we'll spend an eternity seeing more and experiencing more of the grace of God. Yes, we'll be perfect in that. We're not going to have, we're not going to have to deal with Alzheimer's or forgetful things, or we're not going to have twisted things in our minds or anything like that. I mean, yes, we will be a glorified person with a perfect body. We'll be sinless, yes. But that doesn't mean we're just going to know everything. He experienced the wrath of God, so we can't, as followers of Jesus, let our sins take us anywhere but to him. Because here's the great thing about Jesus and the unclean. He's the only one who can touch something unclean and make it clean. Old Testament law, you touch an unclean thing like a dead body, whatever you touch became ceremonially unclean. Whoever touched a leper was kicked out of camp. In Matthew chapter 8, 
a leper started walking towards Jesus. You know what any Jewish person would have done? They would have ran. Don't touch me because I don't want to be kicked out of the camp. I don't want to be kicked out of my household. I don't want to infect everybody. What did Jesus do? He went and touched him. He touched him. A leper. And this leper was cleansed. And you may not have leprosy, but listen, your sin is the most defiling plague on the planet. My sin is the most defiling plague on the planet. And Jesus is willing to touch you. With his spirit, with his grace, with his love, and he's willing even to come into you. Romans chapter 8, if Christ is in you, he's willing to come make his house with you. And for you to be the temple of the Lord. And he died on the cross and rose from the dead three days later. Anyone who believes on the Lord Jesus will be saved, they'll be cleansed, they'll be made pure. And we'll still struggle with sin in the, in, in the here and now, but we have a glorification ready to be revealed to us. Let's wrap this up with the fourth one. To the indifferent, consider your ways. To the discouraged, consider God's perspective. To the changed, consider sin's defilement. And lastly, to the whole world, verse 20 through uh, the end of the chapter, verse 23, to the world, consider Jesus' reign. This is a message specifically for Zerubbabel. And he says again, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth to overthrow the kingdoms, to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations, to overthrow the chariots and their riders, you know, the chief strength of the armies. Today we might say, I'm going to overthrow all the nukes and the tanks and the assault weapons and the the planes. They're all going to be overthrown. Nothing's going to be able to stand against me. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, a mark of honor and authority. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. What is God talking about here? Well, he's obviously not talking about Zerubbabel specifically, because this never really happened. But there is a man who is in Zerubbabel's line. Now, when you go to Christmas, I'm imagining you're, you remember Joseph and Mary, and you remember the angels, and you remember King David, but I haven't heard anybody bring up Zerubbabel at Christmas. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, it says, after the deportation to Babylon, this is in the, the genealogy of Jesus, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And you eventually get to Jesus. See, he was in the Davidic line. And so God is like telling Zerubbabel, hey, and this, by the way, there's... He's, he's, he's David's heir, he, but he's not wearing any crown. He doesn't have a huge kingdom. He's, he's like the governor of this pitiful remnant of people. And it's like God saying, listen, again, you're a small player in this, but you're also kind of a huge player. Because from you, Zerubbabel, will come someone, my servant, that will wear my signet ring, that will shake heavens and earth, that will sit on your throne. Zerubbabel, don't forget that just like David, you play a part in this story. And so when we consider Jesus' reign and Jesus coming back, listen, just do your part. Do your part. Whatever it is, in whatever way God has given you, whatever circle he's put you in. Zerubbabel, his, his, his part was small, but it was important to God's overall plan. And I think as we consider the reign of Jesus, it's also important to remember to stay on the job and finish the work. Haggai calls the people not to be absorbed in their own work, Isn't that the message here? 
So we consider the reign of Jesus, listen, this isn't about our work. It's not about us building nice, fancy houses, getting a big bank account. He's saying, listen, go about the work of the Lord. Be absorbed in the work of God. You say, how can I do this? How can I do this at Calvary Baptist Church? You can do this by striving for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort. By promoting its prosperity and spirituality. By sustaining its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. By giving the church sacred preeminence over all institutions of human origin. By contributing cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. By the way, that was out of the church covenant that you members signed when you joined the church. That's how you can do it. Another thing is we consider Jesus' reign, when there's a poor outlook, try the uplook. Because it's easy to look at the temple, to look at our lives and say, man, this is just terrible. I'm just terrible. My situation is terrible. The outlook isn't great. Which is why Haggai brought their attention to their heavenly ruler. And it's just like, listen, if you're doing the work of God, he's with you. And the Shekinah glory of God would never enter this temple. As a matter of fact, the glory, the glory that this temple would experience would be an even greater glory. You could argue the greatest glory. Because although this temple was, was uh, kind of roughed up a bit a couple hundred years later, Herod would eventually rebuild this temple. And the greatest glory that could ever walk into this temple would walk in about the year 33 AD. It would be Jesus Christ, God in flesh. And there, the glory of God returned to the temple. And he's coming again to establish his, earth, his earthly kingdom, his eternal kingdom, and that's still in our future. We have that day to look forward to. And so find those things in your worship. Find those things which draw you to Jesus, even in your sin. Find those books, those articles, those sermons, those songs that draw you to the reign of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the death of Jesus on your behalf. Because one of the reasons there's 12 minor prophets is because those people didn't do that. They spurned the grace of God. So God had a message for his people a few thousand years ago. And he has a message for us as well. Where's your treasure? Where's your treasure? Because there your heart will be and there also will be your worship. Let's close in prayer. Father, as we... uh, Look at the different categories you gave Haggai to speak to. Lord, there are some in here, certainly, who are indifferent to worshiping you. Some who are discouraged this morning. Maybe it's a result of just unhelpful comparisons. Maybe somebody said something to them that was hurtful or discouraging. Lord, to those who you're growing in grace and you've changed, you've called us to look back and just remember how our sin defiles so it might change how we live in the future. And then you've called us all, you've called us all to look to Jesus who will come and reign. So Lord, keep, keep us busy about your work. In Jesus' name, amen.